0: Father, we understand why the one place we find the disciples asking Jesus to teach them something is when they ask him to teach them how to pray. Because there's something about prayer that we find so difficult. It just runs against the grain of our dependent nature, independent nature where we just think we've got it all together, we've got the resources we need, we have what it takes. And so prayer is not natural for us. But Jesus, your answer to that prayer gives us everything we need when you teach us to pray our Father. That we really do have a Father in heaven who cares for us, who loves us, Who gives us what we need, who has great plans for us, who listens to us. And Father, hallowed be your name. We need to believe that you're a good Father this morning, but we also need to believe and remember that you're a holy God. You are totally separate, unique, set apart. You're set apart in your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. And your justice and your faithfulness and your graciousness and we pray god based on that character that your kingdom would come oh we're desperate for to see your rule and reign come on this earth for god even as we heard last weekend the one mission of the church is the spread of the glory of god to every corner of the earth we long for that and so God we pray for your kingdom to come and we pray for your will to be done starting with us whatever lot in life you've given us whatever you've sent our way whether we wanted it or not whether we like it or not whether it's how we saw our life playing out or not we pray and trust God for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven And so, God, with that posture coming before you as our Father, who is holy, we pray and ask now that you would meet us in this moment. Give us what we need for life and for godliness. Give us what we need to continue to follow Jesus in whatever season or moment we are in our faith, whether we feel very close to you or very far from you very passionate about our faith, or very apathetic. In a season of rejoicing in our lives or in a season of weeping, wherever we are, we're desperate to hear from you. And so God, we hold you to the promise that your word will not return void and that it will accomplish its purpose in our hearts this morning. Penetrate us with it, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I recently read um, an oral history of 9-11 uh, the Only Plane in the Sky, it's called. And uh, what it is, is the author found 500 people with different experiences on 9-11 and interviewed them to hear about their stories. Because if you were alive that day, you have a story, right? You remember what it was like to hear about it for the first time, to watch it play out on TV. Uh, we can remember that. But the, the sense I got when I read through that book, um, I was in eighth grade. So some of you might have realized what was going on better than me. I was a little bit oblivious. But the sense I got as I was reading through that whole book was really one word, powerlessness. Everybody involved, From the person lowest on the totem pole to the President of the United States felt totally powerless because nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew where it was coming from. Nobody knew if there were more planes that got hijacked. Nobody knew if we were now at war. Nobody knew what to expect. Everyone felt powerless. And that's just baseline level. Think about the people who are buried under stories of rubble in the World Trade Center, hoping that someone can hear their voice and come and find them. What a powerless feeling that is. Imagine being on the top stories of the World Trade Center and everything below you is burning. And somehow you figure out your best option in that moment is to jump. Powerless. Or maybe I think, worst of all, you've heard that some other planes got hijacked and you're on a plane yourself and you watch some men approach the cockpit. Can you imagine the sense of powerlessness you would feel in that moment? It just overwhelmed me as I read the book and I started to think about our lives and this sense of powerlessness and how it's such a terrible feeling. But the reality of life is if we live it long enough, we are gonna get to a moment or a season or maybe for long periods of time in our lives where we experience powerlessness, where we have no idea what, where to turn or what to do or where to go, we have no answers. Powerlessness is a terrible feeling. I was talking to a brother in this church in the hallway last Sunday morning whose wife has cancer. And they had just gone in for a scan to see how things had gone. And the doctor came back in the room and said, it doesn't look great. Powerless, right? We had some friends recently who had a baby at 32 weeks old. And so for eight weeks, they had to go to the NICU every night and see their baby attached to tubes and not even be able to hold it. The baby couldn't even breathe on its own. Can you imagine? Some of you can because you've been there. What that feels like, you're totally powerless. Many of you walk in this room with chronic health issues or mental health issues. You you wake up every morning wondering, what's today going to feel like? Is the pain going to come? Are the thoughts going to come? Where's this going to go? Some of you are in marriages that are falling apart. You've tried absolutely everything, but you have no idea where to turn next, and you're losing your spouse, and you don't know how to make it stop. Some of you want to be married, and you never imagined your life playing out as a single person. That was never a picture of yours. But you feel powerless to change anything about it. Some of you have kids who are growing up, and you're feeling the powerlessness of the lack of influence that you now feel over them, that they listen to you a lot less than they used to. Although with little kids, I can say, I'm not sure kids ever really listen to us, but at least we feel like they do, right? But you start to lose influence. And it's a powerless feeling to watch them start to make decisions and go down a path, and you don't know where that leads. All of us feel powerlessness, and maybe you feel that at this exact moment. At at the very minimum, right, we all feel powerlessness in different seasons with our sin. There's just stuff that we do not know how to kill. Areas of our life that we simply cannot figure out how to change. We feel powerless. It's a terrible feeling. And so what are we supposed to do when we have no power? What are we supposed to do when we feel powerlessness and we don't know where to turn? Well, one, one idea that's deeply ingrained in us is this idea that knowledge is power, right? Knowledge is power. It's one of those quotes that nobody knows who even said it because it's so ingrained in our society. Knowledge is power. If we can just learn enough, get enough information, we can change our situation. Uh, well, um, that's why, that's why the first thing we do when we don't know something is to do what? Google it, right? Like, if I could just Google it, I can get the answer and I can change it. I was reading a study this week um, from uh, years ago, about back in 2008 when the FDA decided that to solve the problem of obesity and the healthcare crisis in America related to it, they were going to start putting calorie counts on the fast food uh, You know, menus, you've seen this, right? That's a terrible thing. How can something so small have so many calories? Nobody knows. Uh, But they started putting calorie counts up there, thinking if we can just get people more information, they'll start to make better decisions, right? And we'll solve the obesity crisis and this won't be a problem. Well, one problem. A year later, the studies came back and guess what? We ate more calories at fast food restaurants than we did the year before. Because somehow knowledge isn't enough. To change it. Or maybe you just think willpower, right? Just work harder. Put your head down. Grind it out. Some of you have those personalities. But psychological research will show us that our amount of willpower is limited. And every time we tap into it, we begin to drain it. And at some point, we run out of willpower to do the thing that we don't really feel like doing, but we choose to do it anyway. And we get to the bottom, and we can no longer do it. And guess where we find ourselves? Back feeling Powerless. And so what do we do when we feel powerless, when life overwhelms us and we have no idea how to change it? Mark 11, verses 20 to 25. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. This is a pretty fascinating moment. This is the last week of Jesus's life. Everything is coming to a head. His conflict with the Pharisees is coming to a head. His death is upcoming. His ministry is coming to an end. Every single moment counts. He has days left to live. And so every moment, every word drips with importance, right? And he's got all of this going on in his brain and he's moving towards the cross and he knows that's where he's going. And he stops in this moment to give his disciples a lesson on prayer, which may seem odd to us at first, right? It sort of actually seems like it comes out of nowhere. Peter's like, look at this fig tree. It's amazing. You killed it. And Jesus says, let me teach you something about prayer. It's kind of a non sequitur. But it makes sense if you really think about it. Because what's been happening is these disciples have been spending every day with Jesus for the last three years, right? But what's about to happen? He's about to leave them and they're no longer going to have them, him right by their side. And so you just imagine the power that you would feel that the son of God is with you every day, right? And then all of a sudden he says, and now I'm gone. You have to figure out how to do this without me. So what he teaches them in this moment makes complete sense. What he wants to show them is, don't let my lack of physical presence with you change the spiritual reality in your mind. You still have access to all of heaven's resources. You still have access to all the power of heaven through prayer. You can still ask me for whatever you want, even though I'm not right by your side, when you pray. And so just imagine feeling powerless if you had Jesus right by your side. There's no chance. But what we have to learn is that for all of us as believers, all of the resources of heaven are at our disposal through prayer. I just want to stop there for just a second. Do you believe that? All of the resources of heaven at your disposal through prayer. That you have access to that kind of power. So here's what you have to do. To begin to believe that, you have to let your powerlessness in life begin to drive you to prayer. Because through prayer, we have unlimited access to the unlimited power of God. So here we go. Just four quick points about the power of prayer from this passage. Number one, the power of prayer is rooted in what God has done in the past. Rooted, the power of prayer is rooted in what God has done in the past. So look back at verses 20 and 21. They pass through uh, by the fig tree and Peter remembers and says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So earlier in this chapter, uh, the disciples are coming into Jerusalem and Jesus is hungry. I've never identified more with Jesus in this moment. He gets hungry. He sees what he thinks is food. You know, you open the pantry. You want like the Oreos to be in there and it's like um, lettuce, right? It's like all there is. Jesus gets, he sees the fig tree. He thinks there's fruit on it. He gets close, but it's just leaves. And so he curses it. The next day, the disciples are kind of like, I have no idea what that was, but we're just gonna move on and not talk about it, okay? They've gotten used to this kind of thing with Jesus. So they come back the next day and the fig tree is dead. So uh, he curses it, seemingly nothing happens. The next day they come by and the fig tree is dead. And Peter goes, Jesus, look, that fig tree that you yelled at, it's dead, That's amazing. And you would expect Jesus to go, Peter, I literally spoke the universe into existence by the word of my power, right? Don't be so dumb. That's what I would expect. Instead, what he says is, I want you to remember this moment. I want you to remember this power. So, that when the day comes where you feel powerless, you remember that you have access to this power whenever you need it through prayer. The power of prayer is rooted in remembering in what God has done in the past. So, the most repeated command in the Bible, um, I won't make you yell it out, but just see if you can think of it in your mind. The most repeated command in the Bible is number one, do not fear. Do not fear, which is, we could do a whole sermon on that. But the second most repeated command in the Bible is what? Remember. Remember. What in the world does that tell us about us? That we have to be told so many times, stop forgetting. Remember. Remember what God has done. There's power in remembering. And I think one of the reasons that we struggle with prayer like we do, one of the reasons that not one of us would say we feel good about our prayer life is that we are terrible at remembering. We ask God to do something and he answers. He shows up in a mighty way and he either does what we ask for or does something far better. Either way, he answers our prayer and we just move on and forget. We totally forget what God has done in the past. So C.S. Lewis says, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. The first thing we need to learn to do when we feel powerless is to remember and let the ways that God has worked in the past drive us to prayer in the present. Now I'll just say this. Some of you are newer Christians and so you don't have this history with God where you can look back and see all the ways that God has answered. I want you right now to look around and find an older person. And say, I want you to take me out to lunch and just tell me every way that God has showed up in your life. Every prayer that he's answered. Every time that he's powerfully met you. And I promise you, you will leave that lunch and want to pray like you have never prayed before. Because there's something about remembering what God has done and his power and the ways that it showed up that drives us to pray in the future. Secondly, the power of prayer is connected to the object, not the strength of our faith. The power of prayer is connected to the object, not the strength of our faith. Verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. You know how we read that? Have faith, faith in God. We're supposed to read it like, have faith in God, in God. There's something deep within us that makes us believe that the power of prayer is somehow found inside of us. That if we can just believe enough, have enough faith, pray in the right way, that somehow we can produce something. But the reality is, the power of prayer is not connected to the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. Let me give you an example of that from the Bible. So in 1 Kings 18, uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal um, have this little battle. And so Elijah and the prophets of Baal decide, we have to figure out whose God is God. Uh, there's a drought right now. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna figure this out and get God to send rain. The way we're gonna figure it out is we're gonna set up an altar and whoever's God sends fire down on the altar, their God is the true God, okay? So that's the agreement. Elijah foregoes the coin toss and he says, y'all go first, your turn. So the 450 prophets of Baal set up their altar, okay? And here's their game plan. From breakfast to lunch, they pray and they pray and they pray with all their might. It doesn't work, so they start dancing. Don't do anything the prophets of Baal do, but do dance when you pray. I do want to see that. So they start dancing. Doesn't work. So they have lunch, make a new game plan all afternoon. Here's the new game plan. Pray louder. Doesn't work. They start cutting themselves. Any way to get Baal's attention, to get him to answer, but he never answers, he remains silent, right? So Elijah says, it's my turn. He pours water on his altar and says a very simple prayer. I just want you to hear it. 1 Kings 18, o Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, "'let it be known to you this day "'that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, "'and that I have done all these things at your word.'" "'Answer me, O Lord, answer me, "'that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, "'and that they have turned their backs on you.'" 22nd prayer, right? Nothing fancy, no alliteration, no like stringing together good phrases, just a simple prayer, what happens? Fire immediately pours down. What is the point of 1 Kings 18? One of the points for sure of First King's 18 is to teach us that prayer has absolutely nothing to do with the person who's more committed, has more faith and prays a po- more powerful prayer, because who's that? The prophets of Baal, right? The point of First Kings 18 is to teach us that the power of prayer actually is useless. It's useless. But the power of people who connect with an almighty God is unstoppable, right? That's the whole point. Because what does Elijah do in the very next chapter? He goes into a spiritual depression and starts to doubt the same God who just answered this prayer. It has nothing to do with the amount of his faith or the strength of his words, it has everything to do with a powerful God who hears him and answers him. Our prayer. You you have to know this or you'll never pray. The power of prayer is not connected to the strength of your faith, but to the object of your faith. It's about God himself. The power of prayer is not found in the eloquence of your words or the frequency of your requests or the length of your petitions or the level of your righteousness. The power of prayer comes from the one you pray to and from him alone. And so it's the object of our faith. But we still have to have faith, right? The passage says, have faith and do not doubt. It says that. We just read that in Mark 11. So we have to have faith. The question is, how much faith is necessary, right? How much faith is necessary to access the power of prayer? Look at Mark 14, famous story. But when he saw the wind, Peter, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So Jesus says to him, you of little faith, right? His faith is very small. But did you notice what else happened? He answered his prayer. He answered his prayer. How much faith does it take to access the power of prayer? Apparently just a very little because it's all about the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith. Number three, the power of prayer is accessed through asking. The power of prayer is accessed through asking. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. I think if you were gonna summarize all of Jesus' teaching on prayer into one word, you could summarize it like this, ask. I think, I tried to figure this out exactly, but here's the rough estimation. Jesus teaches 25 times in the Gospels on prayer. 24 times in those 25 teachings, he uses the word ask. He's constantly telling us, ask, 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 and don't stop asking. Here's one example in John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So one of our biggest problems with prayer is that God often doesn't answer, right? At least how we would hope. He often doesn't answer. And that's a huge Thing that we can study in scripture and in, in the Barriers to Prayer class, Sunday School class, we looked at 15 reasons that God doesn't answer our prayers. We can do a one-on-one session. I'll go through those with you. Uh, we can't do those right now. That was supposed to be a joke. Uh, our big problem is that God doesn't answer our prayer. You know what Jesus' big problem is? We don't ask. For Jesus, the bigger problem is not unanswered prayer, but unasked prayer. And I'll just simply ask you this. How many things are there in your life, especially where you feel powerless, that you've literally just never prayed about? You've tried to work it out on your own. You've asked advice. You've Googled it. You've done everything you can, but for whatever reason, it never occurred to you to pray. For Jesus, unasked prayer is a major problem. But... Even though Jesus tells us to ask, there are a couple of things we have to do with that, right? Because it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Jesus says, ask in my name and you will receive. What happens when we ask but don't receive, right? What happens when we ask for something but don't get it? And this promise seems to say, just ask and you will get it. First, the easy answer. The easy answer is he says to ask in my name. And a lot of the things that we pray for are not in Jesus's name, Right? In the first century, your name was a synonym for your nature. And so to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in line with his nature. So to pray in Jesus' name is not just something we say at the end of a prayer. It's a posture we take on where we say, we want to pray things that are in line with who Jesus is. And so every year I pray for tickets to the masters and I never get them. Not one time. I lose the lottery. All of you have them. You don't give them to me. It's a whole big problem. And I pray for it every year. That prayer is not answered because it's not in line with Jesus' name and nature, right? Jesus does not exist to get me tickets to the masters, unfortunately. But that's not the biggest problem, is it? The bigger problem is the things that you ask for in Jesus' name, in line with his nature, that he still doesn't give you. That's the problem, right? So we know from 1 John... First John 5, it says that whatever we, have, whatever, we have, whatever we ask has to be according to his will and we will receive it. We know that, right? It has to be according to his will. Scripture teaches that at every turn. Can I just take a minute and let's talk about what does that mean? What does that mean that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because what we ask for are not in line with his will? Let me just show you three quick reasons. We don't have time to go into these, but we'll fly through them. Three reasons God doesn't answer our prayers because they don't align with his will. First of all, God's best. Sometimes prayers are not answered because God has something better for us. How many times can you um, remember that you prayed for something and now you look back and you think, I am so glad God did not answer that prayer because where would I be? Where would I have ended up? Who would I have become? And look what God had in store you know, Garth Brooks has that great song, Sometimes I Thank God for Unanswered Prayer. Should we sing it together? Ready? Some. No, we're not going to do that. But it's true, right? God is a father who knows what his kids need better than what they need. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer, or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Man, that's f- powerful prayer right there, right? He'll give us what we ask for or he'll give us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knows. Secondly, sometimes our prayers are not answered because they're not aligned with God's goals. God's goals. Romans 8, 28. Many of us know it. Many of us love it. If you've never heard it before, you'll love it. God works out all things together for good for those who love him. Yes and amen, right? We love that. What we think good means though is that we're comfortable and happy and get everything we want, right? That's what we automatically assume. But God's goals are different than our goals. Romans 8.29, which we also have to read, tells us that God's ultimate goal, it's on the screen, is to conform us into the image of his son. So here's what that means. God's goal for you is to make you like Jesus. And sometimes he doesn't answer a prayer that you have because he wants to make you like Christ. And giving you that answer to that prayer would not contribute to that cause. And so you could just... Listen, you know how much that just relaxes you and frees you up in prayer? If you can just realize, I'm gonna pray for this, I'm gonna ask for it, and God's either gonna give it to me, but if he doesn't, he's got something better and he's gonna make me more like Jesus. Then it's power in prayer. Thirdly, the reason God doesn't answer our prayers if they're not according to his will is relationship. Some prayers aren't answered because God's will is to draw us into deeper relationship with himself. One of the big questions about prayer, the way that Jesus teaches us in the New Testament, is sometimes he says, like to the persistent widow, I want you to ask not just once, but keep on asking. You know what we should wonder? Why doesn't God just answer the first time? Why do we have to come back 30, 40, 50, a million times to ask? Lots of reasons, but here's one. If God just gives us what we want every time we come in prayer, our relationship with him goes from father, child to genie and bottle, right? We don't go to God because we want God. We go to God because we want stuff. And God's will, far more than giving us what we ask for, is to give us himself. And so sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because he wants relationship with us. He doesn't want a transactional agreement where we simply ask for things and he gives them to us. But still... Jesus tells us to ask, right? He tells us to ask. And the power of prayer is accessed by asking. So the question is, are you even asking? Are you even asking? Let me read to you this quote from Dallas Willard. He says, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend he's answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was gonna do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a fear that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. We ask, and our asking gives us access to God's prayer, uh, God's power. He answers. He answers incredible power. And then lastly, the power of prayer is conditional on our forgiving. It's conditional on our forgiving. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Here's the point. The power of prayer is conditional on our forgiving other people. Let's just put it more simply. If we don't forgive people, God does not hear our prayers. Why? Is God's forgiveness of us predicated on our forgiveness of other people? Do we have to start forgiving and then God will forgive us? No, it's not it, right? Is it that God hears our prayers more if we're more moral people? No. So why is it that God doesn't hear our prayers if we don't forgive people? It's because when we don't forgive, we show that our hearts never understood unmerited grace in the first place. We show that we never understood that the gospel is we don't deserve the forgiveness of God and he gives it to us anyway. And if we never understood that, we're never gonna have that posture to other people. And so God does not hear our prayers. Listen to what Craig Evans commentator says, he says, therefore, to be forgiven and not forgiving, to have obtained mercy and not be merciful is in reality to have failed to experience God's gracious acceptance and makes a mockery out of prayer. So let me just close with uh, two quick steps toward forgiveness. If I said the phrase, if we don't forgive other people, God does not hear our prayers, and somebody immediately popped into your mind, this is for you, right? Right? If you have someone that you've been at war with for years or you haven't spoken to with for years because something happened between you that's never been forgiven, here's two steps you can take towards forgiveness. I took both of these from Tim Keller's new book on forgiveness which I would highly recommend. The first step towards forgiveness is to identify with the wrongdoer. Identify with the wrongdoer. The hardest thing to do when you've been wronged by somebody else is to realize how much you have in common with them. Here's what we do. We demonize that person and elevate ourselves, right? We make them very simple. So if someone lies to us, we say, here's the deal. They're a liar. Of course they lied. All they do is lie. But if we lie, what do we say? Well, like, here's the deal. If you knew the whole situation, right? There was a reason that I did it, and it's sort of out of character for me. We, we stay complex, but they're simple, right? Right? All they do is lie. And so we'll never be able to forgive them because they're below us. Here's what Miroslav Volf says. He says, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of God, of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. And so we have to identify with the wrongdoer. Second step for forgiveness, we have to inwardly pay the debt of the wrongdoer ourselves. This word for forgive, used in Mark 11, literally means to cancel a debt. And so when you forgive someone, here's what you're doing. You're refusing to make them pay. Refusing to make them pay. But the problem is, when you forgive someone and refuse to make them pay, what you're doing is absorbing the debt yourself. So I had an example of this this week. We, we just got our floors refinished at our house. Okay. They've been refinished for like a week. Okay. So it's like that thing, like when you do something or something new in your house, you pretend like you're literally never going to mess it up. Right. So any small thing is like the end of the world. Well, I did something really stupid and just threw that out the window immediately. Uh, I decided to spray paint something in our house. I know. (laughs) I know. So I got spray paint all over the floor. So I went where? Google, right? Knowledge is power. And I looked up, you can use odorless mineral spirits, no big deal. Wipe it right up. Well, somehow I wiped it up. The finish came off. The stain came off. The whole floor is ruined. Okay. So I called the dude who did our floors and I'm like, dude, here's the deal. Here's the whole process. Here's what I did. And you know what he said? it's no big deal. We'll come out and take care of it. No cost. Which was very kind of him. But the reality is, it's not no cost, right? He has to come. He has to spend his time. He has to use his menwax, whatever, again. It is cost to him. He absorbed the cost. So he forgave me, But he paid the debt. There's still debt to be paid. And what happens in forgiveness is that we pay the debt of the wrongdoer ourselves. Here's what that looks like, just very practically. When someone wrongs us and we forgive them, we give up the right to get even. We give up the right to go to other people and say, can you believe what they did? We give up the right to replay that situation in our heads over and over again to make them pay, at least in our own hearts. We give up the right to go and throw it in their face over and over and over again. And you know what that does when you do that? That's you absorbing the debt because you know what? That hurts. Hurts. Because you really suffered by the way they wronged you. But you absorb the debt. But Jesus is clear. When you begin to pray, if you have anything against anyone, in that moment, forgive. Which means that forgiveness is a practice before it's a feeling, right? A lot of times we wait until we, want, we feel like forgiving someone to forgive them, but the reality is we're gonna stay trapped in that prison forever. We'll never get there. And so we, when we forgive, we say, I don't feel like forgiving, I don't want to forgive, but I forgive anyway. And eventually the feelings of forgiveness come. And it's a beautiful reflection of the gospel, isn't it, in that moment? I mean, I hope you're just hearing that in this. We absorb a debt we did not create for the freedom of a person who doesn't deserve it. I mean, that is the gospel. We accrue a debt, somebody has to pay it. Jesus pays it for us so that we can have freedom. And so, brothers and sisters, when you feel powerless, here's what you remember. All the resources of heaven are at your disposal through prayer. The God of the universe has forgiven you. He hears you. He answers you. And so ask and ask again and come with freedom knowing that you have access to that power. Let's pray. Father, we want to experience the power of prayer. Prayer is hard for us. There's so many things that keep us from it where we don't feel like we need it. And so God, I pray for these brothers and sisters. Would you convince us that we have access to all the resources of heaven through prayer. That, God, you hear us and you answer us and you love us. And we also pray that we have, if we have anything against anyone, if we need to forgive, that, God, we would put that into practice right away and that maybe ultimately we would feel it, but that we would be f- faithful to obey that command for the sake of our prayers and for the sake of the gospel. Jesus, we pray it in your name. Amen. Father, your Son, our Savior, taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. Give us this day our daily bread. God, we, f- we pray these things almost as routine and ritual. But if we would just pause and realize what Jesus is telling us to say. That we come into this room this morning and it's so hard for us to deeply believe that we have a Father in heaven. Who loves us. Who wants to hear from us? Who wants to be with us? Who wants to walk with us? And our Father is holy. He is totally unique, totally separate, totally set apart in his justice and kindness and goodness and truth. And somehow, God, yet you still love us And so we pray because you're a father who loves us for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. It's hard for us to pray for your will to be done. We don't like your will sometimes. A lot of us are walking into this room and stuff has happened to us this week or already this year even this morning, that we did not ask for and we do not want. And so, God, we need to trust you. We want to trust you. And we pray for your will to be done in our lives. And we pray, God, that most of all, you would meet us powerfully right now through your word, that your word would not return void as you have promised, but that would accomplish its purposes in our lives. God, would your word powerfully penetrate us change us, shape us to be more like Jesus and to help us to continue to walk this journey of faith wherever we are. We pray it all in Christ's name, amen. I recently read a, a book called The Only Plane in the Sky. I guess I listened to it. The Only Plane in the Sky An Oral History of 9-11. If you were alive for 9 11, you have a story, right? You remember where you were when you heard it. You remember where you were when you saw the planes for the first time. You remember that day like it was yesterday. And so, what this author wanted to do was gather 500 people who walked through 9 11 at various levels firemen and uh, airline stewardesses, and people who checked the hijackers into the airport and got them through security. Can you imagine? I uh, interviewed all these people to get their story. Uh, aides who were with the president and the chief of staff and all these people. And you know what the one theme I came away with from that book? The, the feeling that I had as I was listening the whole time. What a powerless feeling we all experienced that day. I mean, I was in eighth grade, right? And I can still remember watching those planes hit, and you're just wondering, what comes next? What does this mean? When does this end? How many are there, right? And you know who was wondering that same thing? George W. Bush. Because he also had no idea, and he was totally powerless. They didn't know where to send him or where to go or what was coming next. But at an even deeper level, the people buried under the rubble or on the top floors of the World Trade Center who thought their best option in that moment was to jump. Or I think worst of all, the powerless feeling of hearing that other airplanes have been hijacked and you're on an airplane and you watch men walk towards the cockpit. Can you imagine? The powerless feeling that you have in that moment. It overwhelmed me as I read that book, but I started to realize, you know, really a lot of life is powerless. So much of life we feel out of control. We're out of answers. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. We don't have the resources to deal with it. Powerlessness defines our existence in many ways. We all hit those points where we have no idea what to do. I was talking to a brother in the hall right out here after church last week. And he said, hey, um," his wife has cancer. He said, hey, we went to the doctor and we got the scans. And the doctor came back in and said, it doesn't look good. Powerless, right? What do you do when cancer is eating away someone you love's body? We just had friends who had a, a baby eight weeks premature." And every night for two months, they had to go to that hospital and see their baby hooked up to tubes and a breathing mask and things coming out of their bodies from every direction. They couldn't pick her up or hold her or comfort her or feed her or do anything. Powerless, right? What do you do? Some of you have chronic health issues or mental health issues. And every day, you know the powerlessness of waking up and wondering what is today going to be like? What am I going to experience? How am I going to feel? And you have no control, right? Maybe you're in a marriage that's falling apart and you've tried seemingly everything to make it work, but you can feel it crumbling beneath you and you don't know what to do. Or maybe you're not married and you want to be. And you never imagined that you would go through life single, but you can't figure out where to find someone to marry. You feel totally powerless. What do we do when we feel powerless? Maybe you feel powerless against your sin. You feel powerless to change. You feel powerless to become a different person. What do we do? Where do we turn? Well, one of the places we turn is to that old adage that knowledge is power, right? Deep within us, we think if we can just gain enough information, uh, we'll be able to change, which is why when we uh, don't know what to do, the first thing we do is what? Google it, right? Like There's got to be an answer out there somewhere. If I can just find the right search result, it will solve my problem. Knowledge is power. I just read a study this week um, from the 2008 FDA decision to start putting calorie counts on the fast food menus. That was a brutal thing to do, by the way. Who knew a small taco could have 8,000 calories? I don't know how that's possible. So they put the the calorie count on the fast food menu, right? Because they thought if people just have more information, they'll make the right decision. Okay, We'll we'll cure the obesity thing, the healthcare crisis. It'll all be gone. That's 2008. In 2009, they thought, we've had a year. Let's follow up. See what the results were from this uh, big decision, this big push. You know what the results were? In 2009, we ate more calories at fast food restaurants than 2008. Because more information doesn't actually change us. It doesn't actually give us power. Some of us turn to Willpower. You get into a situation where you don't know what to do and so you just grind it out, right? You work hard, you do the right thing and you look at everyone else and go, if you would just work like me, you could solve this, right? But psychological research shows us that our our willpower is actually finite in nature, that every time we draw from it, we have less and less to draw from. And so willpower can only take you so far until you run it dry and you get to the bottom and you have no willpower left to choose to do something you don't really want to do. And where does that leave you? Powerless again. And so what do we do when we have no power, when we feel powerless, when we don't know what to do? It's what this passage is all about. Look at it with me in Mark 11, starting in verse 20. Mark eleven twenty, and as they passed by him in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. This is um, a pretty fascinating moment in the life of Jesus. This is his last week alive. He's got days left on earth. Every moment is crucial. Every teaching opportunity uh, just drips with importance, right? Because these are the last things that he can pass on to his disciples. And it's in this moment that he chooses to give them a lesson on prayer, which may seem kind of odd to us. Like there's got to be something different that you would want to pass on to us in this moment. But it makes sense if you think about it because think about these disciples. For 3 years, what have they known? Jesus is with them, by their side every day. Imagine the power of having the Son of God with you wherever you go. You can ask him for whatever you need. He hears every request. He can he's always there. And now he's about to leave. And they're about to experience the powerlessness of what it's going to feel like to have had Jesus with them, and now he's gone. And so what Jesus is trying to teach them is, my physical presence is about to leave, but it doesn't change the spiritual reality, which is this. Through prayer, you have access to the power of God wherever you are, whenever you ask. So I just want to say this, because it's what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. Just Let this wash over you and see if you believe it. Through prayer, we have access to all the resources of heaven. Through prayer, you have access to all the power, all the resources of heaven. So Jesus is teaching them and he's teaching us, what do you do when you feel powerless? Well, as it turns out, you have access to the one who holds all power. Even though he's not by your side, you can access him through prayer. And so they pass by this fig tree, right? Uh, The day before... Um, Jesus has cursed it. And the disciples are pretty confused probably by what's happening. They're entering Jerusalem. Jesus sees this fig tree. He curses it. They're like, whatever, we're just going to move on from that. They've learned to get comfortable with Jesus doing things that they have no idea what he's doing. Uh, But the next day, they come back. And they see this fig tree. And Jesus uses it as this incredible opportunity to teach them. So what what I want to show you just real quick is four points about the power of prayer from this passage. The first one is this. The power of prayer is rooted in what God has done in the past. The power of prayer is rooted in what God has done in the past. So they pass by this fig tree. And Peter says... "Oh." Jesus, look, that fig tree that you yelled at uh, is dead now. And you would expect Jesus to say, Peter, I literally spoke the universe into existence by the words of my power. Uh, The fig tree, nobody really likes figs anyway. That's my insertion. Uh, Of course the fig tree is dead. No, what he says is, hey, Peter, I want you to remember this moment. Remember because when you remember this moment, you remember the access to the power that you have through me in prayer so that when you feel powerlessness and you remember my power, you can come to me and ask for whatever you need. The power of prayer is rooted in what God has done in the past. The first um, most repeated command in the Bible, do you know what it is? First most repeated is do not fear. The second most repeated command in the Bible Is remember, which tells us a lot about ourselves, right? (laughs) If we're having to be told the second most things of, second most times of anything to remember, it shows us that we are so prone to forget. And I think one of the reasons that we struggle with prayer like we do is that we're so prone to forget what's happened in the past, the ways that God has shown up, the ways that God has answered, the the ways that God has given us what we asked for, or given us something even better. And we just move on because we think that's normal and we deserve it. And we forget the power of prayer. But what Jesus is teaching us is that what God has done in the past should drive us to prayer in the future because we remember his power and his faithfulness. C.S. Lewis says in Screwtape Letters, It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out because the power of prayer is rooted in what God has done in the past. Now, some of you are new Christians. You don't have a long history with God. You don't have a lot of things you can look back on and go, man, here's all these ways God has met me in prayer. You know what is beautiful about being a part of a church? You can look around right now and find someone who looks like they've been a Christian for a long time. You could probably guess, right? If you you miss, you can ask somebody else. Probably an older person. That's what we're getting at, right? And say to them, hey, I want to go to lunch and all I want to do is for you to tell me the ways that God has shown up in your life and met you. Can you imagine the stories that you would hear and the power of God that would wash over you, leaving that lunch and going... I want to pray more than I've ever wanted to pray because the power of God in the past drives us to prayer in the present. Secondly, the power of prayer is connected to the object, not the strength of our faith. The power of prayer is connected to the object, not the strength of our faith. Faith, Verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Here's how we usually read that. All right, ready? Have faith, right? Faith, muster it up in God. Jesus much more wants us to hear it like this. Have faith in God. In God. But we hear it the other way because there's a deep-seated belief in our hearts that the power of prayer is somehow found within us. That we have to have the morality to make it happen, that we have to have the words to put together so that God hears us, that we have to have the routine and the frequency and put it all together in order for the power of prayer to happen. But the power of prayer is connected to the strength, not to the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. I think we see this most clearly in First Kings 18. It's a story you might know with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? And so Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they're trying to figure out whose God is really God. Uh, and so they uh, put this contest out where they say, hey, the God who sends down fire on the altar and burns it up, they're really uh, the true God. And so they do this contest. So Elijah foregoes the coin toss and tells them they can go first. They can have the ball receive the kickoff, right? So they're first, they're up. So the prophets of Baal, there's 450 of them. Just imagine this scene. 450 prophets set up this altar, and from morning until noon, so breakfast till lunchtime, they do nothing but cry out and beg and pray to Baal to send down fire on their altar. It gets so bad that they start dancing while they pray, which we're going to start doing, by the way. It's a year of prayer. We're going to start dancing and praying at the same time. We'll do it right after the service. So they get to lunch, nothing happens. They do lunch, they regroup. What do they do? Okay, we're gonna come back from lunch until evening. They pray harder and harder and beg Baal to show up and send fire, but he doesn't. So they start cutting themselves, just trying to get his attention. And their little segment in 1 Kings 18 ends this way. No one listened, no one answered. So Elijah comes up, he pours water on his altar just to, to prove a point, right? And he prays a simple two-sentence prayer for God to show up, and God sends fire down and burns up the altar. What's the point? Well, the point is obviously that Elijah is a better prayer than the prophets of Baal, right? He's more eloquent. He's got better words. He's more righteous. Uh, Of course, God hears him. Well, no. The very next chapter, Elijah goes into a spiritual depression, and he doubts the goodness of God A day later. The point of 1 Kings 18 has nothing to do with Elijah. The point of 1 Kings 18 is to teach us this. There is actually no power in prayer. None. But there is unlimited power in the God of the universe. An unlimited power given to his children who access that through prayer. The object of our faith is where the power of prayer comes from, not the strength. And so let let me just remind you, just hear this if you struggle with prayer. The power of prayer is not found in the eloquence of our words or the frequency of our requests or the length of our petition or the level of our righteousness. The power of prayer comes from the one we pray to and him alone the object of our faith. Number three, the power of prayer is accessed through asking. It's accessed through asking. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. I think if you were going to summarize what Jesus teaches us about prayer into one word, it would be this, ask. About 25 times in the Gospels, Jesus teaches us something about prayer, and 24 times he tells us to ask. So for example, John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's an incredible promise. Jesus is constantly telling us to ask. You know what um, probably our biggest problem with prayer is? It feels like God hardly ever answers, right? It feels like God hardly ever gives what we ask for. You know what Jesus' biggest problem with our prayer life is? It's not unanswered prayer, but unasked prayer. Jesus would say to us, why are there so many things in your life, so many places where you feel powerless and out of control and you have no idea what to do, but for whatever reason, you never or as a last result decide to pray? So he's constantly telling us, ask. Ask, ask, and it will be given to you. But we have to ask, right, what, um, what happens when we ask but don't receive? What do we do with that? What do we do with the promise that whatever we ask Jesus in his name, we will receive? Well, the first is the easy answer. Some things we ask for are not in Jesus' name, right? In the first century, your name was synonymous with your nature. And so to ask something in Jesus' name is not just a phrase we put on at the end of our prayers. It's a posture that we pray with. So we're saying we ask God for things that are in line with the nature of Jesus. In other words, things that Jesus would want. And so every year I pray that I would get master's tickets. Every year. I pray when the lottery comes out, I pray when all of you get your tickets that you would ask me to go, and, and it never happens. <laughs> and I don't understand that, because Jesus told me, ask and you will receive, and I hold to that promise. Well, what? Silly example, but what's happening, right? What's well, not in line with Jesus' nature. Jesus doesn't exist to get me to the masters, unfortunately. And so that's one reason, but that's not really what's deepest in our heart, right? What we really want to know is why sometimes do we ask for things that we know Jesus would also want, and he still doesn't give them to us. What then? 1 John 5 tells us that whatever we ask according to his will, we will receive, which is a phrase we say in church a lot. If it's God's will, it'll happen, right? Right? But I just want to stop there and pause and say, here's three quick reasons God might not answer your prayer because it doesn't align with his will. First of all, God might not answer your prayer because it's not God's best. Some prayers aren't answered because God has something better for you. How many of you have ever prayed something and God didn't answer it? And looking back, you are so thankful. Because if God had answered that prayer, your life would have gone in a different direction, on a different trajectory. You wouldn't be the person and with the people that you're with right now. So God didn't answer and you're thankful. You know, Garth Brooks has that song, Sometimes I Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. Any Garth Brooks fans out there? Shall we sing it together? All of us that listen to Garth Brooks? Afterwards, while everyone else is dancing, we'll sing Garth Brooks. Or maybe we'll dance to Garth Brooks. That's not meant to happen. Okay, we gotta get back on track. It's like God doesn't answer our prayers sometimes because he has something better in store for us. Listen to this quote from Tim Keller and just let the freedom of this wash over you. Tim Keller says, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or he will give us what we would have asked for if we know everything that he knows. I mean, doesn't that just drive you to prayer? And to go, God's character is so good and he so desires my best that he's either gonna give me what I asked for or he's gonna give me what I would have asked for if I knew what he knows. Secondly, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because they don't align with his goals. They don't align with his goals. Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We love that, right? All things work together for good. That's amazing, so I'm going to follow God, and he's going to make me happy and comfortable and give me what, we, what I want, right? That's how we take that. But keep going, Romans He called, For those he, who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's goals are often different than our goals. God's goal for you is to make you like Jesus. And so sometimes he's not going to give you what you pray for because it wouldn't contribute to conforming you into the image of his son. It's that simple. And so, lastly, number three, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers for the sake of relationship. Some prayers aren't answered because God's will is to draw us into deeper relationship with himself. You know what one of the most frustrating things about what Jesus teaches us about prayer is? He often tells us that we're gonna have to ask more than once, which is really weird if you think about it. Why would God tell us, hey, doesn't it seem a little needy of God or a little um, petulant maybe that he would say, you're going to have to ask me a bunch of times and then maybe I'll give you what you want. What's going on there? Why wouldn't God just give us what we want the first time? At least one reason is this. If we went to God and prayed for something and he gave it to us and that's how our relationship worked, transactional Our relationship with God quickly goes from father and child to genie and bottle, right? That God just becomes a means to an end. That he just exists to give us what we want. So sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers to draw us into deeper relationship with himself. And so Jesus tells us to ask. And the the power of prayer is accessed by asking. Number four, very quickly, the power of prayer is conditional on our forgiving Conditional on our forgiving. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. The power of prayer is conditional on our forgiving other people. Maybe put more simply, if we don't forgive people, God does not hear our prayers. If we don't forgive, God does not forgive our prayers. Just to be really clear, what we're not saying and what Jesus is not saying when he says that is that we somehow earn God's forgiveness by being good forgivers. But what Jesus is saying is that if we have hearts that resist forgiveness to other people, that is a telltale indication that we haven't latched on to the gospel of unmerited grace where God forgives us when we least deserve it. And so, God doesn't answer our prayers when we don't forgive because we haven't really believed the gospel. Craig Evans says it this way Therefore, to be forgiven but not forgiving is to have obtained mercy and not be merciful, is in reality to have failed to experience God's gracious acceptance and makes a mockery out of prayer. So, let me close with just two quick steps. Uh, towards forgiveness. If you heard that call of Jesus and that warning that if we don't forgive other people, God doesn't hear our prayers and you immediately thought of someone or some situation or someone you know you haven't forgiven. Here's two steps you can take. Both are taken from Tim Keller's new book on forgiveness, which I would highly recommend. The first step for forgiveness is to identify with the wrongdoer. Identify with the wrongdoer. The hardest thing to do when someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you, is to remember how much you have in common with them. Because what you want to do is make them out to be the worst person on earth and also elevate yourself so that you can look down on them. But the only way that you can start to forgive is to identify with the wrongdoer and realize, my heart is just as wicked as them. I'm just as sinful as they are, just as needy of God's grace as they are. What we tend to do when someone harms us is to make them very simple and ourselves very complex. So here's what that looks like. Someone lies to us and we make them very simple by saying they are a liar. Can you believe that all they do is lie? They're probably lying to everybody. They probably spend their whole lives lying. They're such simple people. We get caught in a lie and what do we say? It's, listen, it's very complicated. If you knew the whole situation, you would understand. You're basically a good person who slipped up, but you make the wrongdoer a bad person who just always does bad. Instead, we have to identify with the wrongdoer. Listen to what Miroslav Volf says. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners but no one can be in the presence of god of the god of the crucified messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion and then lastly we have to inwardly pay the debt of the wrongdoer ourselves inwardly pay the debt of the wrongdoer ourselves this word forgive in matthew 11 means to cancel a debt which means when you forgive someone you're deciding not to make them pay but the problem with that is there's still been a wrong there's still a cost So, we just got um, the floors refinished at our house a couple of weeks ago. And then I did something really, really stupid. I decided to spray paint something in my house. I know, I know. Everyone's shaking their head at me, it was dumb. I got paint everywhere, and so I looked up online what you're supposed to do. Turns out Google doesn't know everything. Knowledge is not power. I took the finish and the stain and, I don't know, everything off my floor, basically. I ruined it. So I called the guy who had done our floor just a week earlier, just like with fear and trepidation, right, like just expecting mockery from him, basically. But he said to me, hey, don't worry about it. We'll come out and take care of that for you, no cost. But you know what the problem with that is? there is a cost. He still has to drive. He still has to use the minwax whatever to fix it. He still has to use his time and resources and money. He still loses out on other business. So he can say no cost, but the reality is he absorbed the cost. And that's what happens in forgiveness. When you're wronged, it doesn't just go away. And to forgive someone... To truly to forgive someone is to say, I give up the right to get even. I give up the right to get you back. I give up the right to bash you around town. I give up the right to replay that over and over and over again in my head so I can feel superior to you. You know what you're doing when you give up that right and you forgive them? You absorb the cost because it hurts and it's painful, but we have to inwardly pay that debt. But it's a beautiful reflection of the gospel, right? We absorb a debt we did not create for the freedom of another person. Where have you heard that before? That Jesus himself absorbs our debt, a debt he did not create so that we can go free. So brothers and sisters, when you feel powerless, remember you have all the resources of heaven at your disposal through prayer. From a God who's forgiven you, who hears you, who answers you, and who loves you. And so... Ask, and don't stop asking. Let's pray together. Father, we um, struggle with prayer. It's so hard for us. We're so self-dependent, self-sufficient.